my music. You have music as well. You're a musician as well, correct? Oh, I, I am. Yes. Where is that hiding? It, I have not. I have not recorded anything, and I never played out. I only play for myself. Now that may be changing, but you know my my calendar is is packed with projects and things. So it, it may be a little while, but I've become friends with a lot of musicians and bands and it's kind of lit the fire under me again. Yeah, and no, I but was... I love music. I have, I, let me just for a second here. You can, I don't know if you can see. Holy... That's, that's about half of my CD collection and none of my vinyl. Okay, so, so. here's what we're going to do. You're coming back. I'm going to predict this up front. Um, for those okay. of you listening, we are speaking with Aiden Crockett. She is a trans woman, former firefighter, artist, writer, musician, renaissance person. And you hear me <laughs> inviting her back in advance because Gary's not here today. Um, and again, this is the Tragedy Academy, a show created to bridge societal divides in a judgment-free zone using candor and humor. My name is Jay, and thank you for tuning in. That said, I want to hold the music piece because I, I knew for sure there was going to be something there. That's gold. Gary and I love music. We both produce music. Fantastic. It's a passion. So I would like to take that particular piece of art and save that for everybody that listens to this episode as a spoiler for what's coming next. All right. That said, I want to welcome you to the show. Um, I appreciate yes, you. It's wonderful to be here. Why don't you tell a little bit about yourself to everyone and um, let us get to know you. Okay. Well, you covered the most important part. My name is Aiden. I'm 43 years old. I am a paramedic, a poet, a parent, a partner, an artist, and a trans woman. And biracial, because why not? Let's throw some more, let's throw some more stuff in there. Let's throw them all out there. I like that. I say, you know, do it. Do it. <laughs> I <laughs> exactly. also I think that it's relevant and will become relevant in our conversations that I also am a mental health patient. And it's a very big part of what I do and sort of my larger goals with my work. As I, am I. I, have I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, I have bipolar disorder. I have uh, PTSD and all of the things that come with it. And ADHD. Why not? Same. All day long. All of them. In a nutshell, they ride a spectrum. What people don't realize is that generally, if you've got one of those bells, you might as well be ringing them all at some point in time during your year. You're going to yes. slide in and out of all of them. You're going to find yourself manic one minute, scattered the next, depressed the other. Right. You're going to have OCD where you can't pick something. You're going to get chronically frozen. It's going to be all sorts of bizarre things. And yes, I appreciate you being open with that because it makes people like myself and others listening, it gives them a platform to start their own mental health growth from. And not feeling alone is critical. And whatever your struggle is, whether it's mental health or being nervous for an exam, knowing that you're not the only one makes it so much more manageable. And, you know, having this sort of mental health problems, you know, you also have to be on guard for the things that come with it, which are all of the maladaptive coping mechanisms, mm. addiction, eating disorders, self-injury. And I, again, that is all very much a part of my journey and a part of my work. I actually want to ask a question because I was looking at your Beverly Chills yes. artwork. And 
I believe in some of the work that I've done on myself, you know, trying to overcome a lot of my issues, that the coping mechanism that I used throughout my life was a mask of personality under various roles in different situations. And I would grow to each and every one and become that role, that character in real life until I had explored it to its end and realized it was not going to fulfill the inauthentic me that was not Mm -hmm. living in that moment. And I saw in the artwork that you have on that particular page that you feature a mask a lot. Yes. That mask is very prominent. And as you know, the logo for our show is the masks, um, you know, the, Mm -hmm. the theater masks of, uh, I think it's sock and buskin and they represent something to us. And I want to know what that mask represents to you. Well, so there's, there's a a tiny bit of a story behind it. If, if you'll indulge me, please, I, I began to make my artwork public just, just over a year ago. And one of my very early followers on Instagram, when I still checked everyone who were like, why, why are you following my art? Um, I, I found this woman who had followed me and she went by Holly Weirdstar. I clicked over to her profile and it was just pictures of her in this plain plastic mask, outlandish wigs and outfits. And it would just be pictures of her in front of graffiti or different places around Hollywood. And I fell in love with her instantly. I messaged her right away. I said, I don't know you. I don't understand what you're doing, but I love it. I love you. And and we're friends now. Beautiful. And we did become very, very close friends. And at, at some point early on, she said, would you like me to send you a mask? And I said, oh, oh my God, yes. And so she did. And my first thought was, I will just do what she's doing. And and she can put the pictures on her page or whatever. As soon as I put the mask on, I knew that it would be very different. And I knew that I was going to, that this this page, that this separate project would become very dark and become a way for my shadow self, the part of me that has suffered, but has been, that I've been unable to express because in other ways, it's not acceptable to be that mm. frank. Sounds a little bit like Jung. Yes, absolutely. And that's what it has become. The mask is, of course, a metaphor for that sort of hiding or literal masking that you do, whether it's your ADHD or your gender dysphoria. You you pretend so much that you start to forget what is real, who you really are, until you realize that you are all of those things and, and none of them and so much more than them. And it's an exploration of that. It's a beautiful explanation. And I think that people could learn a lot from it. Um, I tell this anecdote a lot. People might even hang up on the show here right now. But um, just something that has stuck out in my mind since I saw this video. And it's it was uh, just a small, humble farmer who every Halloween would make watermelons into the shape of Frankenstein's head. You know, when I saw it, it just, I was like, this is cute. But at the same time, it really rung a bell. And here's why. What he would do is he would take a clear mold and he would place it over the watermelon and he would screw it together so it would get sunlight and it was still on the vine. So that watermelon would grow, but it would grow into the shape 
of Frankenstein's head. That's fascinating. It is fascinating, but it also resonated with me in that how is that different than who we are in humanity today? We don't see the mold. We don't know it's even there. We grow to it and then we're restricted by it. And then we question why we're not comfortable in who we are. It's because we're not a whole watermelon. We've been restricted to another shape that is not us. Yes. And, And worse, it is you are a watermelon, but you are the watermelon that someone else wanted. Ugh. And that mold is applied to all of us and it's done very insidiously, very gradually. Mm. And I think that it's difficult to understand how harmful it is because often that mold is applied with love. From your parents, from your coaches, from the people who genuinely do love you and care about you, but they don't understand how restrictive their messaging and, and expectations can become to a person. Three words come to mind, genetic and hereditary insanity. That's four words. But that's what I believe humanity suffers from. It's both a external and internal lineage of passing on this game that we've been playing to the degree that we've restricted humanity into small buckets. And if they don't identify in certain areas, then they will actually cause fear in the minds of the people that have this OCD about humanity. Nobody Mm -hmm. recognizes that. If you don't like gender-specific areas or people that identify in other areas, you might want to look and see, A, what you specify, or what, you know, you believe you are or how you identify, or do you have a problem with how people look separately and together? What right. is it inside of you that doesn't allow that? I, I literally just wrote an essay about this. I write a regular piece for our local newspaper. And it was about, it was about not fitting in, not being a good fit, mm. which is something I think that anyone, any sort of minority group has experienced. If you've been the only woman, the only black person, the only person in a wheelchair, you know what it is to not fit in. And I think that at the root of this is that genetic, it, there, is, there is a natural human tendency to try to see patterns. Mm. And when something breaks the pattern, you identify it as a threat. So then when you are, are trying to force homogeneity, whether it's with the racial makeup of a neighborhood or the way people dress, it is because you have triggered this fear response at a fundamental level. And then that runs conflict to our higher self, to our higher mental functions, which want one valued diversity or think they should. Yes. But they also, your mind also values and craves novelty. So you have this paradox. You want new and different, but at the same time, you fear any sort of break in your pattern and your routine. 100%. There is an insecurity and an instability and people live within it. And I like that you use the word homogenous because we do fear change, yet it's the only permanent thing in our lives. It's super odd that that is something we do. It's kind of like fearing death. Fearing Mm -hmm. death 
is absurd. But absolutely, I've read time and again from different authors. Um, I think it's uh, the denial of death by I think it's Ernest Becker, and he talks about how humanity's disease comes from that hereditary and genetic insanity that is born of a seed of consciousness or the ability to comprehend that we're going to die and needing to make some kind of amends with that in the now. And yes, it rung more bells in my head. I was like, well, shit. Yeah, it's basically an extended form of make believe from childhood. Yes. And a compensatory one. I think that especially as modern, modern Western humans, we've become so enamored of ourselves and our cleverness. And we start to believe that all there is, is what we already know and understand. And because we don't know and understand what comes after you die, we start to assume that nothing does because we can't hold it. We can't touch it. We can't wrap it in plastic and sell it. It's not real. And then if there's nothing, how very, how very fear inducing. Absolutely. Because you fear and package that piece. You sell that piece as a societal constraint. It was one thing that struck me. It struck me time and again, working as a paramedic, how people would do anything to live for one more minute, to, to see somebody in those last moments, to know that this is it. There's not, you're not going to help them. They beg you, they beg you, and you're like, baby, this is it. You know, this, this is it. And I wondered, you know, all of these people, they're going to church, and you'd think it would be an exciting time to die. Well, you get to go to heaven. You get to do whatever it is. Mm. doesn't matter. They're terrified. That's probably one of the biggest tells that your life has been a lie. <laughs> I couldn't yeah. even imagine and I, I was a uh, I was a police officer, a military police officer for a while, and uh, I, you know I've been in tons of medical situations. But watching life become death is something that is life altering. It should be. And I want to ask if that's okay. Of course. How does this impact our first responders from your perspective? Because I know that there's PTSD there for so many. Yes. And I feel like that you would be a good person to convey this message. I, well, I guess I, that I am because, I, like I said, I've been a paramedic for 25 years. I, I thought that I could leave it behind. It took about a year off. But I actually, I literally start my orientation after we get off line together. I love um, that, by the way. For a new job. <laughs> so it, it has been with me all my life. I've done this since I was 18. And I remember as an 18-year-old thinking... This isn't going to change me. This isn't going to do any of that. And what happens as a first responder is that your paradigm, your baseline, what is normal to you becomes so divergent from what is normal to a a civilian. But you do not realize it because everyone you hang around with is a police officer, is a medic, a firefighter. You, Mm. You separate yourself from the people who don't understand. But this is it is a horrible feedback loop then because everyone is crazy and you don't know. For me personally, what happened was I realized that to cope with what I was seeing and not just people dying, but just Absolutely. the everyday tragedy of poverty, of mm. child abuse, mm. of addiction, all of it. 
I had to start believing that the people in these situations had put themselves there. They chose to smoke. Mm. They chose to not go to school. They chose to whatever. And, and that made it easy for me to think that this was earned, that, that somehow they deserved this and that my understanding of right and wrong was not altered. What that did was turn me into a giant asshole, a giant asshole. And you see it, you see it in all of those medic crews, all those cops who, who just treat you like shit. Thank you for your honesty, by the way. They are not, they're not bad people. No. They are broken people. And I realized that I recognized them myself and I didn't want to be like that. And so what I, I knew I had to do was then start seeing my patients and the people I dealt with as people and to understand that I did not understand I didn't understand their lives, their situations, their history. And I didn't understand what is right and wrong. That's not for me to understand. It never would be. But in doing so, you open yourself up to that pain. Mm. And little by little, it, it chips away your sanity because you're very stressed. You're very hurt. You're very sad. You're, but you live in a macho world. You can't cry. Mm. You can't tell anyone You've got nothing. You just keep putting it inside. There's no outlet. Until one day you're an alcoholic or one day your your wife is gone or whatever it is. You probably just rang true in so many years across the country. I hope. No, you did. There's no way you couldn't because I've stood in those ranks. I've been there. I've I've seen, you know, my friends and I've been the same person that became the the side of good the it's your fault it's you know it's a way to cope and i think what people don't realize is that every single one of those judgments will live within you for eternity until yes you address them we don't right. realize that do unto others also means judgment and the way that we look at them and we receive them in our day-to-day interactions. Not religious. That's just a great tenet. You know, do unto others does mean that. It's a reflection. Yes. And when we make it those is. judgments, it, it lives with us. And when you are a, a fundamentally good person and you find yourself acting in ways that are, are not good, if you saw them in other people or your own children or your parents, you would not be proud of it. Mm. And yet you see yourself doing it time and time again. It chips away at your self-image as well. And part of PTSD is that, is not knowing if you're a good person or not, not knowing if you've made the right choices. And if you decide that the answer to those things is no, then you also now have the burden of that shame because you wanted to be at least in our case, you you came here to help people. You came here to be a hero. And now in your heart, you know that you're acting in a villainous way. And Failed. it's very painful. You're, you are a failure. But, but you don't know what else to do. You don't know how else to deal with it. And everyone else around there is doing it. It's an identity. Um, it is. It becomes an identity because your old one has been stripped. Because the situations you find yourself in are so unreal and so far from what you knew before your life as a, as a medic or a cop or whatever. 
that you're not the person you were. You don't like the person you are. And what do you do then? You take stock. You sit. Yes. You take a moment and realize that there's no such thing as the past and there's no such thing as the future. And like I said earlier, everything changes. So if you've been given this gift of awareness to your situation, it's paramount that you change. Yeah, you change ideally. in that moment going forward. That said, you have to take all of those knots that you've tied in yourself over the last 20 to 30 years and untie them, each and mm -hmm. every one. And just like a big, you know, knotted mat of rope, there's this really cool phenomenon. The first, you know, 15 minutes of trying to untie it suck because everything's super tight and you don't understand how to get this part and into that part. And then all of a sudden you're hanging it upside down and shaking it because all the, all those knots are starting to come free and they're loosening yes. easier. You're finding knots releasing knots. And it's the same way with those trials and tribulations and those self-deprecating thoughts that you have about yourself. They all start to unravel. They do. But the supposition there is that you have noticed that you've been tied to knots. Mm. If you don't practice that level of introspection, then you, you will never get to untying them because you don't recognize that there's a problem at all. And a lot, I think a lot of people see that mess, understand what they have to do to fix it, and do not have the courage mm. to proceed. It's easier to tell other people. Working through those things one night at a time yeah. is terrifying and painful and exhausting. Very. Very. And it, it will be never ending. Never ending. But that's the beauty of it as well. Once you make that understanding, you no longer have to live in fear of what will always exist. It's kind of like being angry that the sun rises and screaming at yeah. it every morning. That's got to get old. Like, after how many days of screaming do you quit and realize that the sun's going to be there? See you in a yeah. couple hours. Exactly. And it is, um, it's, it is such a complicated thing because not only do you have the internal difficulties on it, but you have been, to go back to our earlier metaphor, you've been placed in this mold and you've been given a way that you are supposed to act and people expect you to act. And you have also been loaded with things you are supposed to be ashamed of. Shame. Asking for help, having mental illness, having to take medication. All of these things have so much shame attached to them that it can keep you from dealing with them. But once you realize that you don't have to be ashamed and you don't have to be afraid, then you can, then you can move forward. I couldn't agree more. Um, I really couldn't. And I want to ask a question about what you see the transgender community becoming, say, 50 years from now. What would you like to see for the transgender community? Well, what I would love to see and what I believe will happen inevitably is that there will be no such thing as a transgender community. Everybody will just be themselves or at least be allowed to. Dressing, there will be no such thing as women's clothes 
romance clubs. That's just clubs that you want, that you feel mm. good in. There will Amen. be no sexual orientation. You just you just screw who you want to screw. And and I I see that in my children where all of, all of all of them, their friends, my own, they all, you know, they experiment with changing their names, their pronouns, all of these things, and they just don't care if I don't teach them to care. Can you repeat that sentence, please? Can you repeat that sentence for everybody? I said that my children will not care until I teach them to. That is extremely important. It's learned. All of these things are learned, and you are creating that Frankenstein mold for Mm -hmm. our youth when we give them limitations. And we're also not seeing what humans are fully capable of. We're missing what the fuck we could really do, because I can tell you this. I grew up very oppressed to my authenticity. Um, I was bullied as well um, for the first 20 years of my life or 18 years of my life. I was bullied for something that I felt shame for, for something that was out of my control, for something that made me question so many things that I didn't even need to question. I had a condition called gynecomastia when I was a kid, and Mm -hmm. that causes a pronounced like breast tissue. And I was a very muscular lean guy. And it was just there. Wasn't anything crazy. You know, it was just enough. It was just enough for somebody to grab onto as my Achilles heel in a very small Mm -hmm. town in a very backwards, ignorant area. And the bigotry that I received from people was unbelievable. Every epithet that's related to being gay, trans, anything like that was hurled at me until I left. My buddies in the army have no idea about this. If they're listening for the first time, I showed up on their doorstep and nobody knew that I even had the condition. I became fucking so good at hiding it. You would never know. I was a fucking magician in my mind. Mm-hmm. In reality, it wasn't anything. Right. It really wasn't until right. it went away. Right? Which happens yeah. with time. You know, you become an adult. This is just another mm-hmm. part of the fact that, hey, guess what? We're all interrelated with our genders <laughs> as we with grow. Genders, and it depends on such crazy difficult things to understand, like hormones, diet. All, all those things can change how you look. At what the hell? <laughs> but but kids are taught to forever be competitive. Mm. And the way that we discipline, reward them, standing out is not rewarded. Mm-mm. Unless it's as a star athlete or, or, or whatever. Mm. Unless you stand up for winning. Or unless it's something that you can monetize and replicate. Right. And, and so these kids, then they're incentivized to, to pick on the weak ones, to establish themselves in this order, because that's how we judge them. We give them GPAs, we give them salaries and career testing and all of these things. It's a way to rank them out. And it's, it's a horrible thing to do to a child. It, it really is. 
you said something earlier that really resonated with me. And that was that you didn't release your art until yes. almost a year or so ago. I myself didn't start working with music and art until about three and a half years ago when I started this endeavor. It was the first time I'd ever stuck headphones on my head and, and done anything like this. And it was the first time I felt like I was at home and that I was yeah. doing something that was authentic to me and that nothing around me mattered. Where does your art come from? And what made you cross that threshold of sharing such beautiful work? Because if people don't know, like, I had tears in my eyes when I read your poetry, Thank when you. I looked at your art. I still have them now as I talk to you, because I have to tell you, the soul that I see in there expressing itself now is something that is like watching a nuclear explosion and a flower at once create art. Does that make that's sense? Awesome. Yes, that's super awesome. Um, thank you. I, I came to art. It is both a, a sort of a funny and a tragic path. My mother was an art teacher. My father was a custom jeweler and they had their own store and art was just in our house. They were both art majors. All of their friends were painters, sculptors, ceramicists, all of it. And then they grew up in that shop, watching them draw out the designs and doing the wonderfully talented artists. But I'm, I'm a contrarian by nature. And to rebel in a house full of hyper-liberal artists, you, you go work for the government. I went to college to be a pilot. Um, my degree is actually in aviation. I saw that. To pay That's for amazing. It, <laughs> to pay for it, I went to paramedic school and I started working as a, a medic. And I eventually decided I liked that more. And um, that was it. I left it. I never picked up a pencil. I, I didn't do anything until my PTSD and my mental problems became so much. I was, I, I was well into an eating disorder. I was cutting myself three, four times a day. Um, and I was so afraid and so ashamed to, to say anything, but I had to say something. And it came into my mind that art, make pictures. Mm. But I didn't know how to draw, I didn't know how to paint, but I could, I could make collages. And so that's where I started. And then I taught myself how to draw and move on from that. I, I watched some YouTube videos and, and just practiced. So that was maybe um, six years ago that I started to do that. And, and I didn't share it with anybody, very, very rarely. And even my wife, I made this stuff late at night. It was very private. And then I came out as being trans. And I didn't, it, honest, it's, it's almost embarrassing. I did not realize that I was trans, that so many of my problems stemmed from that. I, I didn't realize until I did. And I knew there was no going back. And I also knew that that was the last day that I was ashamed of anything. Mm. And I would not be afraid of anything anymore. What does that feel like? <laughs> it's, it's incredible. It, it is, it's like dropping this incredible load that you didn't realize that you even were carrying. 
you know, it, it's like you don't realize you're sleep deprived until you take a vacation. And, but at the same time, it was very, it's very frightening because I realized that one, I had to tell everybody that I was trans and I was a fireman. Oh, I was man. jacked. I was five, uh, yeah, 10, no, I'm with you. 20. I was like, what am I going to do? I'm bald, heavy beard. Like, what the hell am I going to do? And, That's but I the came strongest thing I have probably heard in a long time. I can tell you, having been a police officer and being around firefighters and paramedics and going to all the same classes, working together, breathing the same CPR dolls, giving each other IVs and all that kind of stuff, it is toxic masculinity at it, the highest level. And I've always believed the more toxic it is, the more you probably at are. It's finest, most refined level. Oh my God. And so I knew, I'm looking in the mirror, knowing this, this is me. This is what I was missing. And I can't ever go back. And then realizing I might lose everything. I might lose my job. I might lose my friends. I might lose my wife and my kids. I, I could be left with literally nothing. There was still no choice. So I, I came out to everyone and I, I, I came out to my lieutenant at work. He responded brilliantly. And he says to me, he says, I didn't, you know, this isn't going to work. And I was like, I, I know Lou, but I don't, I don't know what else to do. I, I've got kids. I have to work. Um, and so I started my transition on the job. We're a little department. We only have 50 employees. Wow. And so you couldn't hide. You couldn't go to inspections <laughs> or something. You had to right. stay on the line. And um, it lasted about six months. And um, finally, the, the rumors and the gossip and getting hauled in front of administration for making people uncomfortable the things I said to make people uncomfortable in a firehouse, right? Yeah, that's where the most heinous things on the planet are said. You wouldn't. <laughs> no, I wouldn't know. People would not live. <laughs> but the whole thing ended with me being falsely accused of assaulting a patient that we, we, we restrained this patient. And you know, you've been there, right? You've seen I have seen real fights with patients, furniture broken, bones broken, oh, people yeah. thrown out of the vehicles, real fights. You sometimes get in trouble. You sometimes don't. They put me on leave. They tried to prosecute me. <gasps> I had to hire a defense attorney. When that fell through, they ran me through internal affairs. They decided that not only was I guilty of assaulting this person, that I had in fact tried to kill her. And, um, that I was also guilty of lying because I said I didn't. And the thing for me was I, I had already decided that I'd had enough, mm. but no one would talk to me. I, I could have told them, you don't have to run me through this because I'm trying to leave. Um, and so I eventually was offered the choice to my, my union rep, who was also my engine operator. He got them to, uh, because they fired me. In the whole history of that department, I was the only person to ever be fired who wasn't on probation and also the only one to ever be prosecuted or attempted to be and the only person ever subject to an internal affairs investigation from the fire department but anyway they offered me the chance to resign write out my sick time cash up my vacation 
And in return, I, I could not sue them and I could never be on city property again. So 16 years. And uh, my last day in the firehouse was me being escorted out by a police officer. And he was the only one who said goodbye. And that was it. I was done. And so I was left with a choice. What was I going to do? Because I was, I was broken. How could you not and, be? Um, that's a bond that's like no other. Oh, that betrayal is un- unheard of. It I really could is. not have imagined it. And I thought, what am I going to do? Um, I'm, I'm only 43. I was only 42 at the time. And uh, I, I knew that I, I didn't want to go back to being that angry person. I didn't want to go back to hiding. I, I thought the solution is put yourself out more. Trust people more. Mm. And I said, you know what? You are now an artist. I said, I didn't as an artist. Then I just went for it. I started on social media. I started putting it out there. And a year in, I have held a large solo exhibition on my own. I've been featured in three group shows. I have, um, I have a website. I have this newspaper column I write. I have a book of poetry available on Amazon. I, uh, and I've been on... I bought that Many. book, by the way. It's, it's oh amazing. God, thank you. <laughs> you know, thank and you. the title is so intriguing and nostalgic and everything in between. It says yeah. so much in such a simple way. Do you want to tell everybody what the name is? So this this book is called Black, White, and Red All Over. And I came I came to that because I, I found myself working, pr- particularly with my my drawing in that limited palette, black, white, and red. Um, I didn't really understand and still don't understand what attracts me to that pattern. Um, but I thought, you know, what a great um, title for a, a collection of poetry. And I knew that I wanted to illustrate it, use some of the drawings I'd made. So one thing I have a terrible problem with is insomnia. Mm. And um, I didn't know it at the time. I was taking, um, oh my gosh, what was the medicine? I was taking a medicine, a mood stabilizer. and it was slowly worsening my, my insomnia. So, uh, you know, I went from going to bed at 12, one o'clock and waking up at 6.30 to get the kids going to waking up at six, five, mm. four, three, two, one, until I, I was just awake That's every day. not good for somebody with mental illnesses like bipolar. It definitely exacerbated OCD. it. Yeah, oh, yeah, it will. And, and then, of course, you're lonely. Mm-hmm. It's quiet. And nothing would put me to sleep. No amount of alcohol, pills, weed, nothing. So what I ended up doing was just being awake. And I put this collection of poetry together during that time of just being awake. Um, It's raw. And I actually put together multiple books and only published this one. Um, And eventually we'll go back and read. I I write poetry every day. I have hundreds and hundreds of poems. Um, And... It sometimes is exhausting, especially when I'm kind of on the upside of bipolar because I can't stop. I can't stop writing. No, I can't stop not. drawing. I can't stop working. We had to, to implement a schedule um, that's enforced by my neuropsych and my therapist and my wife that uh, I got like toddler bed hours and shit because <laughs> I will um, I will hyper fixate on things. I will. Mm-hmm. Just once you've opened a door where there's something creative behind it, I will run through it and lock it behind me. 
until I've exhausted every single bit of my time and effort in it and feel like I'm fulfilled with that and probably won't even go back to that door. I'll find another door in there and I'll just honeycomb my way through that bitch until I'm dead. (laughs) Right? That is is it because you're never done experiencing and consequently you always have something to try. And, and it's a unique something. And so I, my hope by coming out and sharing all of those things, not just coming out as trans, but coming out as a cutter, coming out as an anorexic, doing these things is that, I, one, I hope that people will see that you don't have to be embarrassed. I, I wouldn't, I'm not embarrassed to tell people I have asthma. Why would I be Thank embarrassed you, to say Lord, We color? need to make it the same as like, how'd you break your finger? Right. It should be the same level. Yesterday I had a panic attack. Oh it God. sucked. You know, yeah. you should be able to just say that, like hanging out it's at the like, water cooler or whatever thing that, you know, yes. stereotypical. Nobody, nobody sees a kid suffering with an asthma attack or an allergic reaction or something and says, you need to change your behavior. <laughs> you need to pay attention. Stop being diabetic. You. Breathe <laughs> Nobody does that. It would be insane. No parent would be like, oh, yeah, my kid's got this crippling asthma, but I don't want to medicate him because then it's not him. It's not his lungs anymore. See, I have a theory behind that, too. I think when we don't treat others, we're trying to stay status quo within ourselves because the moment we admit Mm -hmm. somebody else has it, then we have to face our own demons. Yeah, and especially as a parent is the second something is is wrong with your kid be it their grades or their body wrong all of a sudden it you internalize that you failed your genes are bad you're you something you did something mm. and by not treating them you can deny it you can deny that so they need help genetic and hereditary insanity is what that of sounds course. like to me yes it really is we pass on we wonder why we have so many similarities with our parents and shit like that it's not just what they gave us. It's also the genes inside of us because genes mm-hmm. hold personality. As far as I'm concerned, they store vast issues. Not everybody talks about past lives, past lives, past lives, past lives. Fuck that. Your lives live in your genes. So of course and you have past right lives. There. They're right there with you. They're your dad, your grandpa, and everybody in between that you're connected mm-hmm. with. There's your past lives, chief. Deny right. it. They're there. They're in the you, chromosomes, man. Then, well, then, and then you add to that your societal DNA. Oh, fuck. And, and a lot of our society is, is ill, is very sick. Mm. And we call this collective illnesses culture. Wow. This is our culture. These flags are our culture. This religion is our culture. No, they are your symptoms. Mm. And you've had them for so long you've forgotten that they were there or that there's another way to be i often wonder what it looks like without sounding like some weirdo scientist or something like that but or maybe this is lord of the flies and it's already been explained but what happens (laughs) if you take humans and start over and Mm -hmm. let them become humans themselves and don't tell them they can't jump more than three feet in the air You don't tell them that they can't fly. You don't tell them that they can't levitate. You don't tell them 
that they're not geniuses. You don't tell them any of these things. Just fucking wipe it clean. What happens? I feel like our limitations are there, but they're not there. Yes. And you know what I love about living in America is that we we operate at the two extremes oh, yeah. of that. On one hand, you have, I think, this uniquely American situation of the second anyone tells any American you can't, their immediate response is, I will. Fuck your mom. <laughs> I do what I want. And, and then on the other side, though, we've been taught to be so afraid of failing and making mistakes. We shame each other in America for any reason. You know, you're too fat, you're too skinny, you're too tall, you're too short, you suck at basketball, you're too good at basketball, you can't win. But at the same time, we're driven to, to do what we want. And at the man, if that's not sick, I don't know why it is. Oh, it's, it's toxic on every <laughs> level. And at the end but of if the you day, want to see it, go ahead. On a small level, we got rid of cable. We, and our kids were watching basically Netflix or PBS. And they never saw any commercials. Never. Their very favorite thing when we would go on vacation was to see commercials on TV. They loved it. But birthdays, Christmas time would come around. They had no idea what they wanted. They didn't want anything. They would, they would make something God, up. that's such a telltale sign that once they're exposed to them, then they can't get enough of them. They're then made they for that. They're geared yeah. to be so enticing to grab a child mm -hmm. and make it their world, their reality. You know, all these things. I talk mm -hmm. about makeup all the time with little girls. We tell them that they're beautiful the day that they get their makeup issued to them. You're a princess today. You are beautiful. Mm -hmm. Run around. You are now complete. And you can even get a little better if you rub some more on there and hide some right. imperfections. And, and maybe go throw up at dessert. Oh, absolutely. Um, well, and I think there's a fundamental thing there that maybe people overlook in what you said. Because we do. We say, you are beautiful. Mm. Not you look beautiful. Not your dress is beautiful. Or I love your makeup. So you are your looks. And if your looks aren't as good as this other person's by a standard that you did not set, mm. then you are not as good of a person as they are by a standard that you did not set. And that is part of that insidious mold placement because we don't realize we're doing it. We don't mean to do that. No, not at all. But at the same time, we, we're not paying attention to our own behavior. No, we're our not. our own word choices. There's a huge one that, that always sticks out to me. And I feel it's one of the easiest ways to explain it. And it's benchmarking the room. And when I say that, it's the person that walks in, whether it be large or small, that declares that their weight is an issue in that moment. Because mm -hmm. as soon as they do that, they say, oh, I'm too fat. Well, wait a minute. Everybody that's above that, very clear, is now automatically fat. And then everybody right. else in the room has to keep from going past that mark. And they've now mm -hmm. got some kind of bizarre ass higher rank in the room for not having that extra weight. It's super weird. They were just protecting themselves 
and they maybe were trying to establish themselves in that hierarchy because yes. they were insecure. Yes, always. And they know they can do that. It's a form of picking on the kid with the guy that asked. hundred percent. You yeah. know, I look back at the pictures of myself growing up and the talents that I have, that I know I have now, that I know were there then, that were like a nuclear explosion underneath a mm -hmm. cap, just sitting yes. there waiting and being, and, and the cap, it was, it was unscrewed periodically. It was right. little spurts. And every time that spurt would happen, I would be told you're showing out, you're bragging, you're arrogant, or that's not a real talent. Now I know that every that's not these things are just the insecurities of the person that's saying them. 100%. Exactly. There's zero reflection. If not, they're actually adulation for how right. great you are. The moment people yes. try to tear you down, you damn well better know you're on your way. Absolutely. And you can see that when you, when you encounter a person who is being themselves, truly, and it's rare. Very rare. Everybody recognizes it. It, love it. is magnetic. It's powerful. You, you see Look it. Look at history. Look at all the and artists we've had. The mega artists, the Amy right. Winehouses, the Jimi Hendrix, the Kurt Cobain. Yeah. They all died loved the and authentic. Price, the price that comes with being authentic in a culture that does not value authenticity. Mm, they get held is, in place and replicate. They don't like or, that. Or, or they have, it's so stressful and people notice you so much and expect so much of you that you self-destruct. I couldn't think of anything more disturbing to me than walking through public and having people constantly bothering or in my face and out of just sheer noticing that would Let I would lose my shit you. like I watch these paparazzi you. things and I'm like holy crap how are they not all in jail or just off on an island together where we take actors out allow them to play and put them back so they're not fucking abused like, right. <laughs> like, I feel like it's so heinous and I'm sticking it up is. for the elite, the ones that are, but I got to tell you, man, I firmly believe that being good looking is just as much a curse and people just don't realize it because it's veiled in all the other shit. Right. Especially if you're a woman. I have a friend, uh, a friend that uh, was part of the reason that I started this show. Um, his name was Garrett Dano and I loved him dearly. He was one of the gentlest and kindest souls you ever met. He looked like a goddamn Abercrombie model. Like he was athletic. He looked like he, nothing in the world could not be on his side. The fucker mm -hmm. looked like an action figure. It was really, yeah. really, you know, but he was the kindest person in the world. And throughout my friendship with him, we worked together and people, anytime he wasn't there, they were saying some of the most heinous things that I've ever heard about him that weren't true or like how his attitude is or he thinks he is and all these different things. But what people didn't realize is Garrett was one of the most sensitive souls I'd ever known. And it was crying constantly. Every time I was around him, I didn't understand why. 
I felt so much pain when I was near him, but I loved him. He was fun. We did things, but there was something there. And I was supposed to see him. And he called me and said that he had changed plans and was going to have to do something. He had, he had uh, moved out of state, but he was in town. And I, I said it was okay. It's cool, man. Let's not meet up. And a week later, I got a call. that He had killed himself. This man that everybody would have assumed was the most beautiful person outside was abused <laughs> to such a degree that he didn't know he was a beautiful person inside yeah. and that we needed him. And it just goes to show that it doesn't matter who you are. You have to be empathetic. You have to love people in the moment. I'm sorry. I'm a little bit emotional. It's the first time I've talked about this on this show, but I loved him dearly. And I hate myself every day for not seeing him. So remember that. See your friends. Make time. Absolutely. You do. You have to. I had had a, a friend of mine, a former medic partner from a different department we'd kind of found different career departments but in the same region so we would run into each other every once in a while and he was always same thing beautiful kind soul um wonderful at his job but you could you could tell he was suffering um and uh right after i got put on uh, leave and they were they were running me out i heard that he was dead and i thought oh he he killed himself for sure. That that's the only way. And I, I found out that that wasn't true. You already and, knew. Uh, I, I knew you could smell it on him that it was coming because I could smell it on myself too. Mm. And like attracts like yeah. And it was it was heartbreaking because I could not go to his funeral. I wasn't allowed to wear my uniform anymore. And everybody knew. Everybody knew that the tranny from the fire department. Everybody. Knew, and I knew that if I was there, and I, I didn't have any boy clothes anymore, uh, I knew that if I was there, I would still focus, that the, the day would become about me. I knew you were going to say that. Instead of him. And so I, I had to let that go and speak back to him in private. But again, it's, it's being in a place where you're not allowed to tell people that you're hurting and that you need help. They will help you, but they feel like they, they can't ask. And you can't tell. Um, and it's it's horrible. It's tragic. And I was that person. I was that person. Same. I was jacked. I was a very good-looking guy. <laughs> girls, girls would stop at stoplights, lean out the window, and say, we want to fuck. <laughs> I love that. It was unbelievable. Yeah, I'm with you. And I had this job that was amazing. Everybody was like, oh, you're a medic. I was, you know, I was on the fire department. I was a, I was a helicopter medic. I had stuff. Your kids are beautiful. Your wife is beautiful. All I could think about was killing myself, cutting myself. So I, I was miserable to a degree that I, now I can't believe that I lived that long doing Man. it. Um, and nobody knew. Nobody It's a knew. testament to the strength that we have inside of us when we can go through trials and tribulations like that. And people won't even recognize them. This is the problem. They won't recognize what you just described as neither a trial or a tribulation. They will recognize that as success, adulations, all these things that you should be revered for. Thank you for being you, all those things. So you better not be anything else because that's where you got everything you ever craved from all of your reward all of your 
self-value is wrapped into that badge, that uniform, that way of life, that yeah. all those things. And I feel like people like yourself, people like myself, um, and our generation, so to speak, I heard something once that said uh, racism and bigotry doesn't go away. It dies a little bit with every generation. Yes. And I agree with that. I do agree with that, especially the less that we pass it on. It dilutes itself. But I mm -hmm. also firmly believe that our generation is in charge of taking the beautiful empathy that is in our younger generation right now and focusing it correctly giving it right. a location where it can have true meaning and impact. And also that we can't unring bells and that applies to people later in life too. So mm -hmm. every bell that you're screaming, somebody else rung, they didn't know it was a bell at the time and neither do you yes. now. <laughs> yes. So pay attention to what you do with your hammers. Yes. <laughs> I, I love that. <laughs> Watch your hammer. <laughs> I. I believe that inevitably society, barring some kind of horrible cataclysm, is, is moving towards an egalitarian, empathetic way of life. It's but written. I agree that our generation right now has our hands on the throttle, you know, and we can either push it forward and go there full speed, or we can pull it back and get there slowly. And if, what is our choice here? You know, how many generations need to keep suffering? How many people need to kill themselves? You know, and how many people what? need to be bullied? To cling to a societal norm for safety. Right. For, for prime evil fear reduction. Because you know, to, without to, it, you're just, not who you are anyway. That should tell you something. Yes. <laughs> it has been a wild, wild ride coming out and transitioning and it, it is very difficult and very scary but in a lot of ways i feel badly for cisgendered people because they're not forced to examine themselves in that way mm. they're not forced to put themselves out there as a trans person you're, you're forced to go out there i never go anywhere without being there now. teaches without you to love thinking, yourself though doesn't it you you love yourself you, you do you find that you you love yourself and but sometimes that makes it worse because now these people are hurting someone you love and before they were hurting someone you hated and it was easier to deal with people being mean to me people being racist oh, to me didn't man. bother me until until i started to love myself and i was like you know what i don't have to take that I don't have to deal with this, but it's hard. It's exhausting. It's work every day. But then on the flip side, I have people that I, I do not know that come out of restaurants, come outside and, and shout across the street to me and say, hi, Dan, you're amazing. And I'll be like, okay, thank you. Who, who was that? And, you know, and around this little area where I live, there's nobody who doesn't know me. It's very, it's, you know what? It's hard to get used to. But you better. Oh, yeah. No, you, which you better because you're I am just who I am. starting. I'm going to keep doing what I do. And you're just starting. This is, this is right. in its infancy. It's got to right. feel like a second life. It does to me. 
it feels like a new oh, life when it, you it, get to tap really into is. that creativity for the first time and and unleash it because you get the opportunity for me this is what i believe when i get rid of the self-loathing and the other conditioned things that i have it's the moment that i begin my own romantic relationship with myself where i become my best friend where i become yeah. all those things that i hated where i begin to embrace even the darkest parts of my soul the things that i know deep down everybody's lying about they have to be because we're all one right i read somewhere that we meet our personalities through other people and that that's how we discover who we are could be very true and it can I also believe be how that. we map how we learn to hide who we are you can hide depending on who you encounter yeah you can hide in uh in a crowd yeah um, well and talking about a, a new life that is something that Every time that I've listened to trans people speak, either in, you know, chat groups or YouTube videos or whatever, I hear a lot about surgery and pills and pills and all of that. What I don't hear them saying is that you have, you, you do have a whole different life now. I look different. I sound different. I have a different name. I, everything about me changed, mm. but not really. Mm. And I have all of these memories from my old existence seen through those eyes and i remember and they start to feel like that was a different person and as i make friends who never knew me before and i'm the people who did are around me enough that they start to forget you you literally it feels like that past person is a, a myth or a story but it's you and it is a weird phenomenon to to see yourself die while you're alive. It's a chapter. Yeah. And it's you do, but it's a period of mourning that comes with it that people seem to ignore. There should um, be. And I don't want to forget that past person, and I, and I, but I want people to see the new person. And it, it, again, it takes work it does. to integrate that. So I want to end just asking a question because I think that we need to affect change with what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And as someone who probably went through one of the hardest transitions that, that I've heard, um, how do you help people that can't identify with your situation watch someone that they love, that they've known under a personality, turn into this new person in, in their mind, when in reality yes. they're the same human simply becoming more authentic? But there's a certain amount of, there's got to be a certain amount of mourning for those Absolutely. people and understanding. How do you help them reconcile so that? If you mean, how do you, as a trans person, help the people in your life deal with Let's, No, not how do you as a trans person, how can they reconcile that? Let me rephrase that. So it, it's hard for me to say because I, I, I haven't had to go through that from, from that point of view. Mm -hmm. But I've watched people do it. I've watched my kids and my wife and and i was do it and i think what is important to remember is that what we touched upon earlier the past does not exist mm. only future so the person you're looking at in front of you is that's the only version of them it truly is and it is okay to feel like you don't know them the way you knew the, the old them but don't fight it they're changing and you should change 
every person should change as they go through life. Mm. Theirs may be in a way that you don't understand, but it's okay. If you slow down, get to know them, follow them on their journey, you'll, you will learn to love them just like you love the other person and probably more. Absolutely more. From a trans perspective, you have to realize that everyone around you is also transitioning. And maybe you are the same person, but you, but you are not. I am not my kid's dad anymore. They don't have a dad. Right. And that's important for me to realize when they picked up me, they call me their DD. The day they got a DD, they lost a dad. The day my wife got a wife, she lost a husband and a whole lot of other things that she thought were true about her life. So you have to realize that as a trans person, you also have to be patient. You have to be open and you, you have to be vulnerable. You have to be brave because people will hurt your feelings. They will make mistakes. And it doesn't mean they don't love you. It doesn't mean that they don't want you to be you. They, they just are learning alongside you. We often forget that we're a mirror when we walk through life. And the way that we reflect to people is what people choose to see. And generally, what people choose to see is what the flaw or character trait within themselves that they hate the most. But if it's you know you are flawed, and all of us should know that, then you can start to examine those flaws and not to improve them or, or change them, even though that's possible, maybe desirable, but to stop being ashamed of them. Carry your flaws with pride the way you carry your perfect cases. You don't need a mask. Be proud of your failures alongside your successes. and you will be a whole person and, and those negative judgments will not affect you in the way that they used to because they won't reinforce your shame because you don't have it. That's the message. If I could convey to people that feel bullied or marginalized or anything of that nature, love yourself and treat the rest as if it was insanity yelling at you. If somebody yeah. told you you were a lesser person, but they were wearing a straight jacket, would you take them seriously? No, everybody's That's what I often say. Say, okay, I'm crazy by whose standards? Bingo. I'm ugly by whose standards? And then you look at the standards you set and like these people are, are sick. I think these you're... people are ugly. They don't know what they're talking about. And it doesn't make it any easier to deal with in the moment. No, it because does not. Because being bullied is still being bullied. 100%. Going through the grocery store as a bald-headed, very eccentric trans woman it's still stressful. You've got to meet, it, though. But it doesn't have to block spectrum. in your soul. The spectrum of people that come into your life has got to be amazing. Because the ones that recognize you for who you are have yeah. got to be like fireworks. People like I that are amazing. brilliant friends since I started putting my art out there. And that was my number one goal when I, when I said, Aiden, what does an art career look like for you? What do you want? It looks like one a commission from the Tragedy Academy is what it looks people. like. You're going right, to there you go. <laughs> yeah, that's what it looks like. Well, I didn't, you're a beautiful human. Thank you. I appreciate you. And I cannot thank you enough for your strength and vulnerability and for setting an example and being a lighthouse for other ships to find their way. Um, it means the world sweet. to me to... to spend time with someone that is sharing 
the rawest art I've seen probably in ever. Your art is amazing. And I just want you to know that. Don't ever stop creating. Don't ever stop creating because people, they need it. They need it. They need you. And thank you. And you're welcome back. Next is music. I can't even begin to imagine what music is going to (laughs) be like. Anything you want to talk about. You know, I have a little side, like a hobby Instagram page I call CD Junkie. Um, where I kind, of to let, me, please. I, I kind of let the lighter side of myself show, you know, that was the whole point of that was to be like, hey, guys, I'm, I'm, I'm more than just this sadness. I, can't wait. I actually do have fun. And I can't so, wait uh, to hear it. Yeah. Yeah. So everybody's welcome to, to check me out. I'm, I'm everywhere as my name is Aiden. And uh, yeah, I love for people to message me and talk to me. So instagram facebook um you also have your website yes my name is Aiden. everything is my name is Aiden across the board if you type that into google you'll find my newspaper column you'll find my art you'll find all of yeah it's endless there's tons of art out there you're probably one of the most content creators i never i never stop you don't because i every time i clicked something i was like wait a minute this isn't like where i was and this looks like I just walked into another wing at a museum. Like every time I, I turn I the corner, stop. clicking virtually. <laughs> so you guys yeah, can't get enough of it. It's exhausting sometimes. But it is, right? Um, yeah, right. I genuinely appreciate you. And uh, everybody, please remember to be cool and keep learning. Yeah. All right. Thank you. It was awesome.